Welcome, friends, to the Celluloid Pudding Podcast. As I had it on, at least when I first put it on. So, yeah. right. reading the paper, it's like, well, <laughs> procreation time. All right, and, doing the doing the cross, and he's just looking at the window, like, ah, there it goes. That's, there that's it goes. like that. That's like that scene in Ammonite, where he's just like, no, we don't need any more babies right now. <laughs> just and okay. she just wants physical, some sort of physical closeness, you know? Yeah, because he's the woman is. Yes, he is. And, and the woman is played by Cersei Ronan, um, is, is grieving over the loss of her, mis- you know, the yeah. miscarriage that she's had. And she just wants to no, be. No sense of, of what yeah. she needs. Ammonite's a lovely film. I love Ammonite. It's a yeah. beautiful film. I'm going to make you watch the SNL spoof sometime, though. <laughs> I think I it's... did see it. Yeah. <laughs> Cutting carrots. One of the one of those things I don't like to know exists because know. it is so accurate. It, it kind of is. Baseballs. <laughs> oh I've man. Got coffee. I've got water. I've got I've got a toddy and water, but my toddy's mm. cold. Should, I'm living dangerously a, tonight. I, so. I might have a uh, a drink. I might drink at some point and see what happens. Well, we are definitely me... going to do the uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf challenge. <laughs> We're definitely going <laughs> to that, That'll be funny because I'm a cheap date on when it comes to drinks. I'm just not. I and can't I... hold my liquor. So we are um, actually before we before we get started, I wanted to I wanted to mention all oh, we can mention. I had something that was bothering me and I, I'll just mention it at the last the end of the episode. So. You can't tell me that, that you have something that's No, it was about Dorothy. Wait. Okay. So it was about Dorothy Stratton. We did the uh, just sort of brief, quickie episode, yeah. uh, weekend discussions. And um, I was thinking about Dorothy Stratton and, you know, just a, a less famous actor attached to a very famous man. Yes. And she died. Uh, it was a tragic death. And I don't know if it was a fan or if it was an ex that killed her. I I, I meant I to a research stalkery that. Stalkery person is yeah. all I can remember. Right. Um, but I was wondering, maybe down the road we could do something based on Star Eighty. Uh, yeah. And I have never of, seen Star Eighty. I've only heard about it, so it would be interesting to screen the film. I was surprised to see that Fosse directed it. So. Um, I, yeah, yeah but, what an odd choice for him. Well, Fosse's, you know, I think of some Fosse films you'd like to do. Uh, obviously, All That Jazz for me. I would definitely yeah. want to do that. Yeah. And uh, Sweet Charity is another one. So you should have a whole musicals, you know, a devotional, we, a novena for <laughs> or something. A novena uh, for, for mu- really good musicals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The good ones. The good ones. Yeah. Okay. So we're doing The World According to Garp. Right. And right. Sam has read the novel because Sam, unlike myself, is a well-read individual and is a voracious I, I, I don't, reader. Don't, don't build me up too much on this one because it, it's been it's been a minute. And, you, uh, uh, <laughs> but I, I think in terms of life habits, you are a much more well-read, well-rounded individual in that regard. I, I don't read anything unless... Either I have to read it or it's something that I just really need to, you know, just get my freaking hands on to read because maybe a movie's yeah. coming out or something, but go on. Yeah. I, I'm not, I, I am a, a promiscuous reader and it doesn't have to be highbrow. I can be lowbrow, medium brow, no brow, highbrow, but um, I do like the medium and I worry about my mind going because, uh, you know, it's so easy to, gosh. Something tipped over over there. What was that? I don't know. It's raining and thundering here. I don't know if you can hear it. Wait, hold on. We have a. um... 
What, what do you think fell? Was it something from the ceiling? Should we pause? Are we good? Uh, no, we just heard a loud bang, like half our ceiling fell in or something. It's a Sasquatch. It's the uh, wolf. What's it? The dog man. The dog man of Ohio dropped oh, through your ceiling. Werewolf right, of yeah. Wakeman. Yeah. <laughs> we, we should do the paranormal. We'd, ha we'd have a lot more juice. Oh, I can't wait for anything <laughs> paranormal. Let's do um, the legend of Boggy Creek. Which let's, <laughs> yeah. you know, I watched a print of that on YouTube years ago, and it, it really it could qualify as a nature film of a swamp. I guess <laughs> <laughs> that's really all you see. <laughs> that's, that's it. Okay. So, so um, after that lovely buildup, I'm yes, I'm a promiscuous <laughs> reader, but it's been a a long while. I'd say the the world according to Garp, John Irving's novel. I think I believe came out in 77 and I would not have been mature enough to read it at that time. So it was probably, you know, maybe a, a decade later than that. When I read it, I, I definitely right. watched the film version. That's George Roy Hill. And um, you, you probably know him from some very different types of cinema. Let's see. He did uh, Hawaii uh, based on James Mishner, Mishner's novel, right. uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance wow. kids, slaughterhouse five, um, a sweet little film I love with Diane Lane, a little romance. Remember that one? Vaguely, yes. Um, I didn't know he did Hawaii. That's actually kind of impressive oh. because I, I know that when that came out, there was a big hullabaloo about me. Yeah. How major, yeah, major. The production was, you know, it's expensive and logistically it was a, you know, huge task. Um, yeah, he did the Great Waldo Pepper. He did the Sting. He's kind of credited for putting together, you know, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, um, on-screen con team genre. Yeah. Yes, um, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. Have, have you seen that, Sam? Because I know you don't. That's like your least favorite genre, but I wouldn't put that in a true western. In, right, westerns are not my jam. Apologies to all the fans of westerns because I'm I'm sure that. I'm just uh, very narrow minded. I know there are all different types. The loud so, types are the ones. I, so you I have try. seen you have seen. Uh, I have seen that. Yeah. Right. And uh, it's a different kind of Western. You, you've got that great chemistry between the it is. Redford and, and Newman. And I'm team I, Newman. Yeah. Yes, I'm I'm team Newman as well, even though Redford has made some seriously good films. I believe right. George Roy Hill also did what looks like a silly little summer, you know, popcorn film called Slapshot about the uh, hockey team, sort of a down and out hockey team and Paul Newman's in Slapshot. it. Slapshot. Did he do Slapshot? I, I love just Slapshot. wondering. Yeah, George Roy Hill did Slapshot. Oh, man. And that's... Herbert, my my husband had wanted me to to watch that. And I was like, I don't know, hockey. And I don't know what. And it's a delightful film. It's it's just delightful. It's sort of bad news bears for grownups, I think. Really eclectic. If if you think about these, you know, big sweeping things like Butch and, and Sundance and uh, and Hawaii, and then this sort of uh, quirky, interesting little slice of life that is the world according to Garp. Yes, it was. I I have here the publication is down as 1978, and that we were a little too young to be reading. A world according to Garp, but I do remember in my high school days yeah. that the the cool smart kids yeah. were talking about the novel, and I I did not see, I could have seen the movie when it came out, but I did not go see it. I just put it off and put it off and put it off for years because I didn't think that Irving's stories, when people would describe the plots to me, would were something that I would particularly get into. Yeah. So I had not seen the film, and. I think maybe it's important to right now mention how did it get received critically? Um, I think that Pauline Kale, I wish I had the direct quote here, said that, it, you know, that it was a fair representation of the book, um, but nothing deep. And a lot of scholars then took issue with that because they felt that it was not at all representative of of the novel, not a fair adaptation. John Irving, Ms. Magazine applauded Irving's effort um, in writing in a female voice or for the female voice, this, this feminist, truly feminist novel in right. um, the world according to Garp, where 
the new man is represented, new man who understands the depths and complexity of, of women and, and is rooting for uh, authenticity, authenticity, I should say, between the sexes and greater awareness and blending of genders and so forth. And a lot of people felt that George Roy Hill, the director of GARP, decided to make it a safe bet and take out some of the more harrowing or uh, vulgar even or rough scenes. Uh, Rape and lust are are definitely themes both in the movie and in the book. The book delivers images of of both of those, particularly rape, in in a very realistic and harrowing way from a female point of view. And that, you know, for such a heavy subject, it's it's sort of glossed over in GARP. And and I'm not saying, I, I, I think in this case, I wouldn't compare the book and the movie. I'd say, let's, let's see how the movie stands on its own. Because not everybody is going to read the book, read the novel. So, you know, do the characters come across as complex or, or only unidimensional, as as some have taken issue with, and some people have said? Yeah, it's the basic plot. Uh, well, I was going to just touch on a couple of more comments from how it was received critically. Pauline yeah. Kale, to, to paraphrase, said it was more or less true to the novel. Yeah, but she basically reads it as a castration fantasy. <laughs> a yeah, castration fantasy. And there, there's a lot of that going on in the in the book, isn't there? right? And uh, or in the I, movie, rather. And I had read Roger Ebert's review. I think you had also read it. Yes. And I watched one of those old clips, um, you know, those Siskel and Ebert. Uh, right. Little. When did those come on? I can't remember. Uh, television. Oh, my gosh. All through the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. They were they were pretty big until they split up, yeah. I believe. Yeah. But Roger died. I don't think he enjoyed the novel to begin with. Because I had read his his review that was in print. Yeah. And uh, he he didn't much care for the novel, yeah. but and he felt that as far as an adaptation, it was about as true as it could be for films yes. yeah. or as appropriate as I don't like to use the word appropriate hmm, packageable. I don't yeah. even like to use that word, but packaged as a film rather. Yeah. For mass consumption, it was right. a, a film that would appeal to a broad audience. And I, he didn't use the word dispassionate, but I. I kind of walked away from reading that review as, as saying it didn't really make yeah. him feel one way or the other that it was meh, you know. Yeah, that's that's the impression I got on the little from the little video snippet I watched the Siskel Ebert and Ebert uh, Roger Ebert went first and said, you know, I I was rooting for the right people during the film, but I didn't walk away with any deep thoughts. You know, it didn't it didn't haunt me. I didn't have any any great depth of feeling. And Siskel said, I, I don't even know if we watched the same film because I had the opposite experience. Um, it was so incredibly uh, fleshed out and gave me wonderful food for thought with these, these very archetypical um, types of characters. Okay, so before, so, we, before we get into the film itself, uh, just a few more words on Irving. Yeah. Uh, he wrote world according to, The World According to Garp, The Cider House Rules, or yeah. Cider House Rules. Hotel New Hampshire, great, and also a, a prayer for Owen Meany, and I believe all of them have been adapted to film. I especially Owen, love um, Hotel uh, New Hampshire, at both the film and the book, and I'd love to discuss that further down the down the well, line. Yeah, true confession time. We we decided to do World According to Garp as an introduction to Irving because we both want to do Hotel New Hampshire so yes. bad. <laughs> it was a complicated, really, complicated, it's complicated, strange, but. It's just a lovely film. I, I <laughs> to admit that is it's like, OK, well, don't think I'm weird, but I loved this film. Yes, it's, uh, it's got everything, something for everybody in Hotel New Hampshire. And but, um, Irving came out at for the 40th anniversary of the book, I believe. So a couple of years ago and said he was extremely disappointed in, um, <laughs> you know, in the world society generally, because he <laughs> thought he was writing a period piece. Right. In 40 this years, was, this won't that, matter that, you know, the, these lines that we have, you know, you know here, here terms like toxic masculinity or transphobia or um, feminism, even being considered a dirty word reduced to feminazism and, you know, other pejoratives. He, he felt that that was going to be 
really a thing of the past and we would have moved on as a society and was he's disappointed in us all beth his themes seem to be let me put this out there do you do you think of irving as a pacifist in terms of his maybe his personal ideology that maybe we we're just that the world is kind of going off its axis and just becoming more and more violent no i i think he takes a more picaresque view of of how individuals behave but hopes that the you know the better angels will win out um and that that you know decency will win out but but people do have their idiosyncrasies and uh certainly all of his characters are are, are very eccentric in one way or another you know the so. reason why i use the term pacifist um is we have assassination attempts in garb yeah. And and there is mili- there is a sense of militancy yeah. in the film. So I guess now is a good time to get into the actual discussion about the film. Well, we start Plot. with the, the character of Jenny Fields, and um, she's having a, a sort of argument with her parents. Uh, Jessica Tandy has a little appearance in that as her mother. And Hume Cronin. Yeah, that's right. Um, so her her somewhat elderly parents, um, she, they think everything has gone wrong. <laughs> she tells them how she, that how she would like a child, and uh, I can't remember if she's already. She must be all. No, she's holding the baby, right? She's holding right. garp. She, she's already and had she, garp. <laughs> and uh, the father can't hear anything, so the mother's sort of <laughs> translating everything. And, you know, she says she wanted the baby and didn't need a father for it. What? Didn't need a father for it? What do you mean? So they can't understand her at all. And as she's walking away and saying her goodbye, she says, oh, and by the way, um, the way he was conceived is, uh, you know, his his father uh, was was bedridden and, and he was about to die. And uh, except he had this this I don't know medically why this was, but he. He had Mor- this perpetual erection. Yeah, so I morbid, thought, what better way to get some sperm? It's referred to as morbid priapism because uh, T.S. Garp yes. and M. severely brain damaged. And that was the only thing he that came out of his mouth until, until uh, the very, very end. <laughs> until, the, and, until the very, very end. And I, I believe T.S. actually stood for tech sergeant. And she, she decided that I, that was unclear to me if, if there yeah, was such I a think, position or she just decided that. Yeah, I think I think you're right there. The condition actually is he he has sustained injury to his brain, and that injury yeah. has caused him to have this perpetual erection, which is uh, priapism. That's the medical term for it. But they 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 refer to it as morbid priapism. I guess the priapism you get as death is impending. I, so, I didn't so actually she, research she, that. <laughs> it sounds like you did a little research on that. Well, I, I, priapism is actually <laughs> something priapism. something that um, it's a, a sign that indicates there could be either deep central nervous system injury or the spinal injury, severe okay. spinal injury. Um, so she realizes this soldier is not going to last much longer. He, all he can say is garp. <laughs> and then when he drops the G and he's getting to ARP, yes. she figures, um, you know, she doesn't have much time. She feels very strongly. This is where the book might be important. She suffers a lot of in- indignities uh, from the male of our species. She's a war- wartime nurse. Right. Um, she's assaulted in a movie theater in the book. None of this is mentioned in the film. Right. So we don't quite understand why she has this position of I can be a full-fledged, complete individual without a, a man in my life, without anybody in my life. I just, I'd like a baby and I'd like to live my life. And I, and I wouldn't say it's a feminist um, kind of angle, but very much an individualist angle. This is well, how I want to live my life. It is kind of feminist because it comes back in into play and it, it comes into play in a couple of ways. One, not knowing that the background from the book, yeah. we look at her as basically a, a sexually assaulting a brain trauma patient yes. lying in a hospital bed. And yes. without the, the foreknowledge that having suffered assault or abuse herself, yeah. that she would feel that she could take, I don't want to say the word liberty, but that she was free to take what she needed from that patient. And I, yes. I, I say it sort of sterile like that because her Jenny Fielding, Garb's yeah. mother, 
fields, I think. Just sort just sort of has this clinical approach to body parts and genitalia anyway. She yeah. she's very pragmatic and yes. she needs something from him. He's about to expire. She gets what she needs. His he, he seems pleased with the one other word that he utters just before yes. he expires. And and off she goes. Uh, yeah, almost as if that's Irving's way of saying if the uh, if the soldier could have give, given consent, he would have said thank you yes. to Nurse Jenny, because yeah. he says the last word he says is good, <laughs> good. <Yeah. laughs> so it's interesting to me that her first job after being a, a, a wartime nurse is that she becomes the uh, infirmary nurse for a boys prep school. Right. Yes. Of all the places she could choose to work, she decides to work at a boys prep school. But maybe it's not so odd a choice. She has this deep forensic curiosity about lust, lust and men. What what drives men to behave the way they do or women to behave the way they do? I think She's she looks at it as a complete, you know, as someone who who really genuinely doesn't despise men, but really views them through this forensic lens of what, what is it you want from yeah. women? Why, why does that make you feel that you want that, that person? How, how are you wired? Yeah, yeah. That curiosity of how, how are you wired? And initially when I was watching the film, I thought, Oh God, this, this is not somebody that you, you thought, or at least I thought watching it, that she was just a very uh, unlikable character and that scene in the diner when they're talking with the sex worker and she's trying to hire her for garb maybe set that up why are they uh why why have they gone to new york (laughs) they both decide that well garb says he wants to go off and be a writer and the only place to do that is new york city and then of course his mother of course that's the only place you you know this is why initially in the first you know what 30 40 minutes of the film i'm like i do not like this woman this is an overbearing, oppressive mother. But yes. when they have that conversation in the diner with the sex worker, she she's like, okay, do you, do, she, she wants to know if he wants this. Yeah. She doesn't really understand why. And she's like, okay. And then she offers the money, which is hilarious. That part yeah. in the film is absolutely hilarious because they both, yeah. you know, Garp and the sex worker, yeah. both the no, woman, mom, that's both illegal. freak out. And then genuinely like well why because yeah. and that is feminist it's her body she should yeah. be able to do with it what she wants i love the lead up to the scene they've 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 just moved to new york uh jenny garp's mother when garp says he wants to be a writer uh, he, he starts writing some bits about his life and she said no no you can't have that you can't use anything about me because i might want to write about that <laughs> that kind of reminded me of my relationship with my mother a little it, bit. It's a much nicer character than than Jenny Fields, though. <laughs> and so they moved to New York. They're, they're getting some groceries to head home. Jenny, the mother, says, oh, is, is that the new style? Uh, and Garp says, no, mom, that's the oldest profession. And uh, Jenny says, the mom says, well, I, I'd like to go talk to these ladies. And that, of course, that leads to that, that very awkward but really kind of funny scene sweet and funny scene in the cafe right. prostitutes a bit wary like you know i'm not into kinky mother son trio stuff so i don't know but but jenny just wants to understand her point of view and i'm not sure prostitute is the word that garp's mother uses and i yes. I'm, I'm using the the modern reference which is sex worker but the in the language of the film they call yeah. her a prostitute or yeah. the mother calls her a prostitute. Yeah. Actually, Garp doesn't say much. He just <laughs> sits there. He, he's and- sort of mortified, actually. Right. But he's but what I do give him credit for or the character credit for is when his mother says, do you want to have sex with this woman? <laughs> you know, most most sons, adult sons would be like, oh, my God, get me out of here. And he looks at her and looks at looks her in the eye, the woman they're speaking to and says, yes, you know, very, very honestly. And Jenny says, well, what is it about her that you makes you want to have sex with her just because she's there, just because she's a woman? Is there something deeper to this? So she's trying to understand. Right. Uh, you know. Why sexual are you attraction? like this? Men, why she, are you like this? Yeah. But she's she's very 
I, I wrote down utilitarian in her approach to sex and genitals. You know, it's very almost scientific, Darwinian, uh, not Darwinian, but just sort of, you know, sort of a zoologist's approach. She is <laughs> and, uh, yeah. trying to understand the, the mating rituals and trying to understand why, why are yes. men wired like this? Why are women wired like this? Yes. She's a very fascinating character. It, it is Glenn Close's premier role. It's her very first major motion picture role. It is. She, she's very young, but she, she owns the role. And um, going back to, to the story though, in New York, um, Garp aspires to be a great writer and his mother is not really of an artistic bent, but she ends up writing this manifesto, feminist manifesto called what sexual suspect. Right. Right. And is immediately elevated to this iconic status. Right. You know, she has followers right away and garners all of this fame that that Garp was was longing for. So he, he's he's very much in her shadow. Yes. And and she evolves. She's sort of like this. She just feel, deals with it all very matter of factly. Here's the interesting thing. She's not really the if if she's accused of and and she winds up being a uh, figure or chauvinistic, you know, reaction because of her manifesto. But she's not. I don't believe the way she behaves once she becomes this iconic figure that she's mm -hmm. not acting as cult leader. She goes back to her house in New Hampshire and 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 really stays there she only yeah. kind of comes well, out when she's called upon to help further the cause well she she actually with the proceeds from sexual suspect is able to to have this enormous property this mansion really which she sets up as a, a sort of shelter for women who have been abused or isolated or alienated or somehow wounded in some way. And that includes not just those who were are, are biologically female or in, in today's parlance assigned a, a sex at birth and, and identify with that sex, um, but also one of the best characters in the movie, I in my opinion, um, John Lithgow's character, yes. who is Roberta Muldoon, uh, a trans woman uh, that he plays in the, in the film. At one point, Garp and um, and Roberta are walking along and there's a lot of dysfunction roaming around this, this house. And he see, he says to her with, without irony, what are you doing here? You seem to, to be the one with the, right. the best put together person in, in all of this milieu. <laughs> milieu. 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 Um, I can't so, even say the word. Milieu. So yeah, um, it, for it, uh, John Lithgow at his best, really. What, I don't know if this was his first role, but I, I know it is a very young John Lithgow, and he is Roberta Muldoon, former tight end for the Philadelphia Eagles. I wrote these notes here about yeah. the just different, different interesting things I felt that I saw in the film, like yeah. motifs, if you will, but flying being one. But then the other one yeah. is running, <laughs> the constant running that There's takes a lot place. of running takes place in Garp's neighborhood. Lots yeah. of running and the chase scene, the, the, the there's a truck in Garp's neighborhood that just yeah. blows through and this enrages first... Garp because he's very protective of his kids, all kids, right? Right. This becomes his nemesis, right? Yeah. For some reason I found that so amusing. And then when the chase scene happens later and it's he and John Lithgow and they're just they're just he and Roberta are just the, the truck turns around and comes after them. And I'm watching John Lithgow, who is a tall man. He's a very tall man. Yeah. I, I think yeah. Lithgow is something crazy, like six, six or something. He is, and he's he is hurtling guy. over fences. <laughs> <laughs> like a really gracefully. Star. I mean, wow. Yes. Very impressive. But uh, his portrayal of a uh, trans woman is is just so honest and it yeah. felt very realistic. And and this was back in 1982. I, I found uh, I, I think we should use the correct pronoun here. I, I found her to be um, the most maternal, the most perceptive, the most compassionate of of all the characters in that ensemble. You have mm -hmm. Jenny, who's sort of a remote and botific uh, woman, uh, very eccentric in her ways. You have Garp, 
who is a, a creature of his, you know, own making. You have right. Mary Beth Hurt, who plays Garp's um, wife, not Mary Beth Hurt, but in, in the incarnation of Helen, who is right. a, a literature scholar. And you have uh, Roberta, who is just trying to pull all of these people into a more humane existence without trying, without trying by just being there. I, I found something you you mentioned something interesting about John Lithgow's character, Roberta, Roberta. I have this feeling I don't know. We see these things like they're walking on the beach. Yeah. <clears throat> Here I am clearing my throat again. She is noticing the boat in the water and the Roberta is a perceptive character. Yeah. There's also I, go back to that. I, 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 re, I remember watching that and she's constantly looking to the horizon. Is there a danger? Is there a danger? Yes. And I didn't really understand why that boat was a danger. Why did she keep looking out there? Why did they give that? There's there's a time? few moments where Roberta, you had mentioned the perceptiveness of the character, very grounded, very in tune with everything. Yeah. But there there are some little moments where leading up to there's several tragedies that happen toward the end yes. of the film. There's a perceptiveness that Roberta has, but I do wonder in this John Irving universe that intuition plays. There's this, when, when his mother leaves, when Garb's mother leaves to go speak at a governor's campaign or this, he has this look of deep admiration as his mother's leaving. Uh, and, and that, I think that's something I want to stress too. It's not that Garp can't stand his mother. It's just that I guess for anyone that has a good or healthy or close relationship with their mother, you'd have to say it's complicated. It, it is complicated. He's, he's very proud of her. Extremely he doesn't fully understand some of her, for want of a better word, um, disciples or groupies who, who are at her, her mansion. And there's one extremist group in particular, I guess right. we should mention, they call themselves the Ellen Jamesians. Yes. And this is a group of women who have uh, been inspired by a tragic story of a young girl who had been raped. 11 and then those who assault 11 year old who had been assaulted by uh, a group of men. And then they further mutilated her by cutting out her tongue. That's the thing. So these Ellen Jamesians um, to connect with the uh, and to sort of make their point self-mutilate they they cut out their own tongues right. and and they are very much against the male of our species so they would be on the on an extreme end of that that feminist spectrum and they 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 go after garp too um you know yes. their leader's son is not even accepted yes and there's an instance where he goes and he's visiting his mother at her home Beautiful home, yeah. by the way, right there on the yeah. some cove there in New that, that was actually shot in uh, the north of Long Island. I, oh. I read that, yeah, but uh, it is beautiful. The woman trips, and she's a Jamesian, an Ellen Jamesian, mm -hmm. and all Garp does is he tries to help her up, check and see if yeah. she's okay, and then uh, yeah. you, you see the Jamesians are completely freak out, and he doesn't yeah. understand yeah. why this has happened, but there is the idea of perception and intuition there are moments in this film where you feel like take for instance garp and his wife's infidelity yes they, there are certain things they don't know but their intuition tells intuition to intuition for me at least in this film and i would love to read the novel now i think is a very powerful element well, in one of the critiques um that i read had to do with the issue of infidelity helen who is a professor of literature, has what she calls her graduate students, her graduate students. <laughs> graduate. She has a, a little fling Walt. with, with uh, what is his first name? Milton, Milton. is his Latin name. Milton. Paradise Lost, for sure. Uh, Not one of the better performances, I thought, in the film. No, kind of a limp performance. It was just very bad. I uh, <laughs> but regarding the infidelity side of it, uh, the characters know about these, these slips in the book, uh, I'm, I'm referencing critiques. And in the book, the Garp character understands that she is a complex uh, human being with needs and, and certainly has done no worse than he has. 
And some have pointed out that the movie kind of shortchanged that idea of the new man who understands that, you know, women have needs too, and these things will happen um, and instead has a, a royal ape-like fit, like, how dare you? How dare you deceive me when, you know, he's seduced the babysitter and others. And uh, uh, But but I, I guess to, to compound the situation, probably the worst tragedy in the, in the film occurs because of that infidelity and because of the way it's, it's played out. You know, his mother, his mother kind of puts, helps him put it in perspective though. She's like, you've got to forgive her. You've got, you've got to move on. And here's the thing. It's sort of a double standard. He never admits to the infidelity. At least we don't see it in the film. I don't know about the novel, but he never admits to his own infidelity, but then she knows you know, she knows she right away. He's just knows. way too happy coming to right. bed. Like, isn't life wonderful? And she says, "Did you seduce the babysitter?" You know, right? <laughs> he gets all defensive. No, yeah. how could you? <laughs> but um, I keep yeah. thinking of Vonnegut and that the uh, the phrase, and so it goes, and so it goes. So do we have to, do we have to just accept that men, if they are unfaithful, they are never going to admit it, and women will get caught? I. I'm just, I tr- yeah, I try to make sense of it. So, well, well, there's the double standard and those who criticize the film vis-a-vis the, the novel say that the fragile male ego is on display in the movie. Whereas in the novel, Garp is the new man. This is a whole new world. And he's able to take that point of view and understand um, something that's said is that uh, Helen, his wife, and Garp are equals in a marriage. He defers to her. She is the literary expert. And right. when he first shows her his his first short story uh, in the movie, she just you know falls apart to tears and says, "It's so sad. It's so sad." <laughs> and oh, my hero! And he's delighted. And apparently, in the book, she's you know a true scholar yes. and says, "It's a good start." Uh, it's a little juvenile in the ending. Work on it and hands it back, you know, as a true right. literary scholar would. They wouldn't just, you know. So, so people fall into their into their expected roles in the film, and it's it's a little more fleshed out in the book. It is a it is a film that makes me want to read the novel now. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So I'm uh, eating a Hershey's kiss. That's nice. I'm gonna drink some more water. You you know I think we've made it sound like a real tragedy of a movie. When there are great moments of levity and laughter in the film, there delightful are. moments. So I, I hope you do watch this film, even though it's, you know, a throwback to the 80s. There is, there is a certain when people were describing the novel to me, there is a, there was a certain in their descriptors, a certain quirkiness that yeah. the narrative sounded like it had from the descriptions of the novel from when I was very, you know, much younger. And I saw mm-hmm. all the cool, smart kids in AP English were walking around with a copy of the world according to Garp under their, under their arm. While I had James and the giant peach. Oh, can I just say while you're thinking that I love their car, Garp and Helen's car for very personal reasons, the humor. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Now I'm back on track. Yes. Was that riff? That was riff. I, my very first car was a, uh, a classic by the time I got it when I was 16 it was a 1962 Volvo 544 Sport, black with red and black plaid interior. And the car they drive in, Garp, Garp and his wife have a, a 1962 Volvo. So that was a bit of, oh, oh, my first car was that. It's, I, uh, I'd like to point out that I was born way after 1962. Not not so far after 62, well, but uh, well, just like to, just my well, little that, point That's of a big throwback there. because that car was a, legendary car your car yeah. was a legendary car yeah and she Same named it riffraff, riffraff. yes yeah, and it, it definitely looked like a riffraff if you're going to name the car it was it had some character what i was going to say is that the film to me was not d- did not come across as sort of whimsical or as strange and imaginative a world as i was thinking that the novel was by the descriptors there was that one attempt and you had brought it up we were talking about the film earlier about the illustrative, the cartoon illustration in the middle of the film. Mm -hmm. And it's like something that he tried that George, George Roy Hill tried, 
Yeah. And it, it didn't, it didn't really, I'm not saying it didn't work, but it now looking at back at the rest of the film, just no. odd and seems out of place. It's odd because I think there's really no other way to convey other than self-reporting that, that Garp is a successful writer with an imagination. So maybe that was a device used to say, hey, this kid has has an imagination. But there are a few awkward transitions from Garp as a kid to suddenly full-grown Robin Williams Garp as a, a young man trying to court I don't know if Helen. I bought, yeah, I don't know if I bought Garp as a college student because, uh, and I don't know how old he was when the the, movie, the film was made, um, but I don't, th- that seemed awkward that he, we see Garp as, as a college student and I just didn't, I didn't quite buy that. But I, 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 I guess in, in terms of making the film, you want to introduce your, your big actor as soon as, as soon as you possibly can in the film. This was his second major motion picture. The first film he did, let me see if this title jogs your, like rings a bell for you. Oh God, what? (laughs) It's going to blow your mind. Can I do it till I need glasses, which was in 1977. I've never, ever heard that. Remember when we were talking about films like Kentucky Fried Movie, Boop 2? Oh yeah. It's a film along that that line, a bunch of sketches, racy type of uh, sexy, naughty sketches okay. pieced together. I believe that's the type of film it was. And I'm if, mem- finding it. if memory serves, but he, he did Popeye in 1980. Yeah. The, it does the say it was his film debut. Okay. Uh, can I the, do it till I need glasses? Popeye was panned. Rightly horribly. so in my opinion. <laughs> really? Popeye was panned. What sort of substances had to be consumed the night that <laughs> that idea was conceived. Let's let's make a film version of Popeye. Of Popeye. Yeah, he was Popeye. You, you have to admit you, you were looking at a live action Popeye. Yeah. His, the his the forearms were really, really disturbing to me. I just the, want to say that the forearms were really gross. <laughs> yes. I don't remember who played Brutus. Wow. I Shelley, don't remember. Shelley Duvall played Olive, obviously. Right. Yes, she was made to play. Olive. She was made to play Olive. So he he plays uh, World According to Garp. Kind of gets middling middling reviews. Some people, it, it's not. I, completely... I think he joked about it in his stand up. You know that many times. Right. Sort of dissed himself for playing that, accepting that role. I think it was Good Morning Vietnam. Was when people oh, yeah. were like, "Yeah, this yeah. guy's this guy's good as a um, serious actor." That and Fisher King. Yes. Uh, yes, with Jeff Bridges. A man who lives in fantasy after the tragedy of losing his, his wife due to some senseless violence. Now, Glenn Close, we've, we've talked about before, Glenn Close, this was her premiere debut. And then shortly after, what, 1985, she does a film that you and I both love and is very near and dear to our heart for many, 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 many reasons. And that is The Big Chill. The Big Chill. The Big Chill was, it's funny, when I first saw that, I was younger than those characters who were sort of portrayed. I think they were supposed to be in their early 30s. Yes, 30-something. And their their reunion is, is, uh, unfortunately, the cause for the reunion is is that one in their group of friends, college friends, has committed suicide. And they all come together in a wonderful town and house in Beaufort, (laughs) South Carolina, which is also my hometown. Not that, not that you have any bias about no bias there whatsoever. <laughs> but Glenn Close, she, I think she got an Oscar nom, not a win. Um, yes, because of her portrayal. Of well, this was uh, the two. I was wondering if they it had more nominations, and it didn't. It only had two nominations, and that was mm-hmm. Glenn Close for Best Supporting Actress and yeah. John Lithgow for Best Supporting Actor. And neither, I think, have won an Oscar. I don't know how many times Lithgow has been nominated. Glenn Close sits at eight without a win, and it's just inconceivable to me. But he he kind of uh, reinvented his career, didn't he, with, with Dexter and all that? Yes. Did John Lithgow. He, Lithgow has gone on to become a, a very sought after, I would say, character actor. Yeah. And he's he he went from roles like like playing Roberta and sort of the nice sort of nerdy guy 
Yeah. Uh, he was in a very successful sitcom called Third Rock from the Sun, which is yes. very funny, very popular in the 90s. And probably if you're a fan of just streaming shows, The Crown, the first season of The Crown. and did, Oh, my God. He does he, he the does Churchill. A, yes, he does a wonderful Winston Churchill. Yeah. Very, very good. He's, he's so one it, of our national treasures. I he, he's a very fine actor, very fine actor. And I, I completely forgot when we were talking about Glenn Close earlier, because I had thrown out there that she, she just went bam, bam, bam with nominations in the 80s. She yeah. went Garp, Big Chill. Then I believe the one with Michael Douglas. Um, oh, 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 Fatal Attraction. Fatal, fatal Attraction. She was nominated. See, for I, Best I think Actress that's where she that. took a misstep. She then became. And then she. Then the nomination Something. for Dangerous Liaisons, which yeah. I still maintain she should have won that year. She should have won. That was that was a great film. And John Malkovich was such an, a wonderful villain in that. He, he was a wonderful villain. Just no words uh, coming It must out be so it. frustrating because I, I do think she's of a caliber, the, the Mel, Meryl Streep caliber, but not uh, the darling in the same way that Meryl Streep is. And I also forgot that Glenn Close had an, an incredible success on Broadway, I believe, yeah. the production of what Sunset Boulevard, because I was asking Sam earlier if, as you said, was Fatal Attraction a misstep yeah. or was it such an impactful role that from that point on, you saw her from being sort of this sweet, grounded, beautiful human being in in the big chill, right? Yes. To kind of the baddie or the yeah. crazy or the harpy or what have you. She, she just yeah. sort of, to me, or, or the rigid, brittle, rigid. You know. Yes. And, you know, I do wonder if, if her role in fatal attraction just kind of in a way typecast her yeah. or kept her from getting considered for different roles, but that's, that's not fair. She's, she's an intelligent woman. She's yeah. done great projects. She did a, uh, um, Albert Nobbs. She did yeah. the Margaret Kammermeyer story back in 1994 television movie about yeah. the military exclusion for gays and lesbians serving in the military. Yeah. So she just very progressive actor. Yes. Uh, and she has her- a sense of humor because she did appear in Mars Attacks too. So you got to yes. give her props for that. Yes. What, is she the vice president or the president? Or I'm not sure what she is. <laughs> Secretary of State. I think State. she's the vice. I love that film. So um, do we want to. All right. If we did it Siskel and Ebert style, okay. would you give would you say go out and, you know, or stay in because we all have to um, and and hit the uh, rent button for for the world, according to Garp? Would you pay the three ninety nine again or would I pay or it again? It? No, pay it for again. a first time. If you heard this, this little rant, would you say it's oh, a- yeah, that's something I want to see? Well, you know how I love to watch films with share films with my daughter. It, this is a yeah. film I would share with my daughter. I, I, I would say watch it, watch it for for John Lithgow alone. But but I'll, come for the uh, Glenn Close and stay for the John Lithgow. It's 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 worth a watch. In, I think it's a, it's a it's a different kind of film. It doesn't. Here here's where I think it misses, except for that moment where the airplane plasts through the the house that they're per, their first home. Their first, their first yeah. family home. Yes. And, and by the way, guess who the pilot was of the plane? I don't know. Who plays the know. pilot? George, George Roy Hill. Okay. Of course the That's man was little... obsessed with, with planes. And I think he drove a biplane to work or something. And That's a little, just little obsessed cameo there. With, with the airplanes. I didn't know that. That's, yes. that's a good one. That's, that's him. Um, Real quick. Yeah. When, so when the film opens up, we see this infant, this little boy infant. And immediately I'm thinking baby. Is penises. that what you're thinking? Yes. Because well, they don't show that it's a boy baby. At first they're, they're playing the no. Beatles when I'm 64. Da, 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 baby da, penises. Da, 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 and then. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but but then the rest, the rest of the, the first 15 minutes is about Carp losing his virginity or his mother making use or utilizing the penis to obtain what she wants, which is a child. So it just seemed very penis fixated to me. The whole film did I at least in, the beginning at least in the first 15 minutes, the beginning with the baby floating up and down, but do, it, it promised me with the Beatles song when I'm 64, it's such a whimsical song and the baby happy baby. 
right? Floating up and down in the air. I thought there was going to be a lot more whimsy to the film. That's that opening should have set the tone for something a little more whimsical. I agree. It felt felt like there was the promise of whimsy that we did not get. I don't know that they could get away with, with showing that opening again. If you were a director in Hollywood, wait, are babies off limits? Babies are babies. I wonder sometimes I do wonder, do you know what I mean? I do wonder. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but I do, I do wonder. I I think there would be context there. Um, I don't know the answer to that i don't know that if they would make if they would choose to do that today yeah i don't know i don't know but it's I, which, just, which says I just, a lot because there there's innocence right that's absolutely. not anything puerile so. absolutely but somehow or other i don't know let's let's go into what are you watching but then also what's coming up okay sounds good so uh, what are you watching still on dickinson or are you watching something else along with that i watched oh god not I haven't really watched anything. I've been really kind of focused on on learning stuff to podcast. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> editing, editing, editing tutorials is what I've been focused on. Yeah. So, I, I, I hear you. Yeah. Um, there's but a learning I, curve here. We're learning fast though, Sam. Yeah. We're learning fast. So thank you for sticking with us as we figure things out, basic things that a nine-year-old could teach. We try real hard. People. We try real hard. We try real well, hard. I'll tell you what. Uh, well, uh, watched um, from 2016. There was a, a Matt Damon film called The Great Wall, and it was who was directed. Who directed it? Um, Zhang Zhang Yimou. Yeah, let's go to. Oh, The Great me. Wall was you know popcorn fair. Popcorn fair. Lots yeah. of um, cool tricks with uh, acrobatics and a big fantasy about guarding the great wall of China from um, an old legend where we're sort of T-Rex beings come and swarm uh, the area to remind humanity of its greed. I want to see that movie. I think when I saw the trailer, it looked fun. It is fun. Did you like it? I did. I I wouldn't say it's something I'd watch again. It was, you know, a nice, uh, a nice night. I have a hard time with Matt Damon because if an actor does one good film with me that I just sticks with me that I'm just hooked with and and that would be the talented Mr. Ripley, I'm always going to cut him some slack real quick. Mm-hmm. Talk about what's coming up and I'm really excited. I'm super excited about so, what's coming up next. We're we're going to do a we're going to have a guest. Yes. Very dear a friend special of ours. guest. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this is one of his favorite films, and uh, we invited him to come on and to talk to us about the film in English, which is Run, Lola, Run. It is a German film, and the German title is Lola Rent. And it's, it's really innovative in many different ways. It stars Franco Potenta. And I don't want to say too much because I want to give our guest his, you know, his yes. time to, to fill it out. But it's a terrific, terrific film. Uh, great score, too. And Frank is great. And the direction is great and innovative. And the concept will blow your mind. Yes. Franca Potenta is, is great in it. Yeah. And yeah. had to be one of the most fit actors. Yeah. There's, there's <laughs> a lot of running. When, yes. when they say run, Lola, run, they, they, they mean it. They really mean it. But a thoroughly enjoyable film and the soundtrack is yeah. awesome. And very different from the fair we've covered so far. So, right. so we're getting into. We're bumping it up some... at least to the 90s. <laughs> we, we are. We're, we're getting there, folks. <laughs> um, we're, and we're going to be flipping around quite a bit. Yeah. That, because that's just how our brains work. Did but we also... want to do Don't Look Up? We, 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 we kind of threw that idea around. But we let's see. Let's see. But we are definitely doing also with another guest, mm-hmm. American Sniper, which yeah. I have not seen. I do know the story, though. I'm familiar with yes. the background story, and I am definitely looking forward to doing that. No, so, not my genre, not my genre, but I have to give it to Clint Eastwood that, that it's, an, it's an interesting way that he told the tale. So I wanted to, before we close with world according to garp i wanted to mention to you did you happen to see the credits at the very very end of the film no and i'll tell you why okay because my tv does this thing where it thumbnails the um 
the damn end credits and says up next. And I, if I knew how to turn that off, I would. But is there an Easter egg or, or something notable? There's a, there's a little nugget that I thought was notable. So there is this little line that says Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin appear courtesy of the McDowell Colony. Now, McDowell Colony does not refer to itself as colony anymore because of the uh, history of the the term colony being associated with oppression, but it is the artist's colony where it was funded by, it says here, Edward McDowell and Marion McDowell. Edward was a composer. Marion McDowell was a pianist. Okay. It's in Peterborough, New Hampshire, founded in 1907. It has existed up to now. I think it was 2020 was when on March 13th, 2020, the McDowell shut in the face of COVID outbreak and sent artists and fellows home. It was the first time the site had shut down since the 1938 New England hurricane. Wow. This wow. is a, uh, this is a basically an artist retreat and you, they award fellowships to mm-hmm. writers, sculptors, painters, composers to have peace and quiet, basically contemplate contemplation. There's that word Con- to be deep Leave in me alone. I'm deep in contemplation to, so to go McDowell and create colony. I'm writing it down. Some of the, some of the notable works that were done there, Aaron Copeland's orchestral suite, Appalachian spring, which was okay. also a Pulitzer winner. And I thought, well, of course, Appalachian spring was done there. Of course it was. <laughs> Spalding gray, Leonard Bernstein, Thornton Wilder, Willa Cather. Wow. Virgil Thompson, Alice Walker wrote her first novel, Meridian there, Michael Chabon, Alice Siebold wrote The Lovely Bones there, Jonathan Franzen completed The Corrections, and I got incredibly touched when I read this, James Baldwin wrote Giovanni's Room there, which is a novel. Really? Yes. Okay. For some reason, I thought that was a, a, he wrote that in Paris or or somewhere. About I, France. Had, I didn't know that. Or perhaps he had a draft in Paris and, but yeah. do you, and maybe this is where he completed it. I think it's time to wrap you it up. You were supposed I, to say a word in response to that. Now I forgot. Milieu contemplation. No. Milieu uh, Poitiers. Oh, to it. Well, I think we is have. a good way to end? I don't know. No, but well, this is how we're going to end. I think we've beat that within an inch of its life. We have. Well, you know, there's a lot there and probably a deeper. I I don't know if we've done it justice this time around. I think it's worth a view, though. I think it's worth a view. I I didn't want I would say read the book. It's a film. Pick up a fucking book for once, won't you? And no, and not not a bad first first stab at a serious film for for basically all three actors, Lithgow close and even though it wasn't robin williams first film yeah certainly his his first stab at a major lead in a and also the, the very underrated mary beth hurt i, yes. I think she's fantastic her performance really gets forgotten in this film and she's wonderful in it yeah. um she's she's great in i don't are we allowed to do woody allen films i don't know but there's a very unpopular sort of workman-esque uh, film that he does did rather called interiors in which i Mary really Beth Kurt is I have not seen that i i can't erase the film yeah i can have my own opinions about the creator yeah but film is is a to me is is, is all collaboration because you have to have all of it in order for it to be a good film for me yeah so i'm not going to automatically dismiss and erase no there, there's film. a wonderful ensemble in interiors and uh if the devil himself had had directed it uh, it wouldn't take from away from those performers right in the film and mary beth hurt plays a a strong uh supporting role in that film i would argue that the reason why some of his films are so critically were were so well received is that he cast some amazing actors some amazing leading women in all of his films yeah. uh, if you ever look at his credits juliet taylor is is his casting uh director and she really put some great uh great maybe, performers in his lap um, maybe maybe, maybe juliet taylor should be winning those oscars i don't know <laughs> maybe she maybe she should 
<laughs> should have won those she, Oscars. She, she certainly is responsible for a lot of those those uh, actors that found the, their way into Woody's films before he became uh, whatever we think he is. Woody, Woody the suspicious, little suspicious. Uh, one of my very favorite directors. Uh, that's a whole other can of worms. Is is Roman Polanski, who, as we know, has has had he's yes. got some problems. Uh, Bertolucci. Uh, yeah. We were just talking about that today with uh, Last Tango in Paris. Yeah. And we're not doing. Um, <laughs> let's, let's, let's save the scam has for... sworn me off doing that film. Well, I think we've I think we've we've done a solid hour on the world, according to Garp. And I think we can we can end it here. And we're yeah. looking forward to our, our future projects. Looking forward to run little run. So as we say, Sam, and be kind to rewind, be kind and rewind. Sam says, don't leave your uh, popcorn bucket, bucket on, on the, the bottom of the floor. theater floor. And as Sam likes to say, watch something different. Yeah. Get out of your comfort zone. Watch it. something different. And read a book. For and Christ's read a book, sake. for God's sake. Read a yeah. book. Even better, write a good one. Write a good one. Make a good movie. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Good night. Good day. Whatever time it is, a good one to you all. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Have a great night.